You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. What a joy it is to be gathered to worship the Lord who speaks truth. We invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 32. Ephesians chapter 4, 25 through 32. Let's read God's word together. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, 80% of all New Year's resolutions fail. That's a pretty astonishing number. Perhaps you had a few this year that didn't pan out quite like you hoped. Change, changing our lives, is a hard thing to do. Whether you're changing your eating habits, whether you're getting more exercise, whether you're trying to cut out smoking, whether you're trying to be a manager money better and be a better steward or whatever else you're trying to change about your life. But I think it's a bit astonishing that, that every human being seems to have this intuitive sense, this sense of need that compels them to change, that we have this desire to change. And I find that fascinating that the most popular books on our shelves today at least in the nonfiction category, are those called self-help books. There's something, I think it says something about us, something about our human nature that we sense within our own heart and with our own souls, whether we're Christian or not. We have this deep ache for our own self-improvements. But nevertheless, true and lasting change always feels a little impossible to us. And here is the bad news. Change is true, substantive, down-to-our-soul change is impossible. We might be able to adjust some of our behaviors and restrain our vices by our own will and self-discipline, but we cannot fundamentally change our fallen nature on our own power. And here is more bad news. The scripture says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So holiness is mandatory if we will stand one day in the presence of God in heaven. So we cannot change ourselves. 
So what's the good news? Well, there is good news. The good news is that Christ can change us. He can change us. That if we come to Jesus by faith, we immediately, at the moment of our faith, we receive his righteousness credited to us. That's how we're accepted before God, on Jesus' righteousness, his holiness, not our own. And so we are accepted before God on account of Jesus. And so by faith, what happens is that our lives become united to Jesus. And as we are one with him, as we receive his righteousness for ourselves, we now participate in Jesus's life. Now, throughout Ephesians, Paul has broadened our scope of how we think about God's salvation. Salvation is much more than forgiveness of sins. Certainly not less than that, but it's much more than that. Salvation is is more than just escaping the punishment of hell, as wonderfully good news that is. Salvation, as Paul's been trying to present it before us, God's grand and glorious redemptive plan all throughout this letter to the Ephesians, he's been helping us see that salvation is participation in the fullness of Jesus's life with all its holy love, with its glorious inheritance, with its lavish grace. I mean, just let me remind you of what we've seen so far in this letter to the Ephesians. We have been blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing, Paul says. That it is in him, in Jesus, that we have redemption. That the whole work of redemption is told over and over again in this letter and throughout all the New Testament. The whole work of redemption is in Christ through our union with him. And so because of our union to Jesus, Jesus' fullness, Paul says, is now shared with his people. So we are the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1.23. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul prays in Ephesians 3.19 that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says in Ephesians 4 verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So last time, if you were here, we, we saw that the Christian gospel, when we learn Christ, it is transformative of who we are that there is a new self that God creates and forms in us. God takes ugly sinners like us, and he beautifies us with his holiness. All this happens because we learned Christ. And so we walk in the truth as the truth is in Jesus. So we are people of the truth who live under the truth. And so the Christian life is one of ongoing putting off the former manner of life and putting on the new self, which Paul describes in Ephesians 4, verse 24, as created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The gospel isn't about becoming a better person. It's about becoming a new person. By God's grace, he is recreating us in Christ according to his likeness in Jesus as we, through our union with him by faith, participate in Jesus's very life. 
So as we look to Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, our passage today, Paul is going to continue to be more specific about the sort of behaviors we are to put off and what kind of behaviors we are to put on. He's going to give us application, specific examples, that if we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we are to have received in Christ as God's children, that we have to forsake our former life and we have to embrace and live out what it means to be a participant in Christ's life as the truth is in Jesus. Truth begets holiness in the life of the Christian. So Paul isn't merely giving here in our text. He's not just giving good advice as a sort of first century equivalent of seven habits of highly effective Christians. That's not what he's doing here. But rather what he's doing is he's describing the sort of life that participates in Christ's life, a life that has truly learned Jesus, a life that is putting the the former life of our Gentile former pagan ways and ignorance, casting that aside in a life that is being recreated after the pattern of Jesus in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul gets very specific here in his application, and he helps us see that actual change can only happen by the gospel, but that actual change isn't just over major sins like lust, murder, gluttony, drunkenness, but it's over smaller sins, very ordinary, almost commonplace sins that we tend to overlook without much attention. Those daily aspects of our lives and our conversation like lying, anger, stealing, speech, the transformation of the gospel goes to the most ordinary aspects of our lives. And so with the gospel as our foundation for understanding the Christian life, I want to help us see five areas of our life that Christ should transform, if you've learned Christ. So the first one is we go from lying to speaking truth. From lying to speaking truth. Christian people are people of the truth. Why? Well, because we've learned the one who is true. So Paul calls us in verse 26, he says, put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. You see, we were futile in mind. We were darkened in our understanding. We were duped by deceitful desires, but everything changed, remembered, when we learned Christ. And so God's people are created by the truth And so therefore, God's people must be truth speakers. We speak the truth that if we are participants of Christ's life, the fullness of him who fills all in all, then we therefore must speak the truth to our neighbors. Falsehood can express itself in a lot of different ways, can it? While falsehood can be a sort of blatant lie, it can also take the form of flattery, of withholding key details, of exaggerating to make ourselves look more nobler than we are, or describing others in the worst possible light, or presenting straw men arguments for positions you don't think very kindly of. And in our digital world of influencers and marketers, we have professionalized deception, Each and every one of us can go on social media and curate a carefully constructed image of ourselves that may or not be true. We can 
Of course, we do that in the way we present ourselves, but we can also do this with images now, can't we? We can Photoshop away extra pounds. We can apply filters to conceal our blemishes. And we can make promises that we know just aren't true about us. But for those created by the truth, for Christian people, we must always speak the truth, even when there's a costliness to speaking the truth. We can be tempted by falsehood in kind of two different directions. We can be tempted by falsehood for the sake of popular opinion, and we can be tempted to falsehood for the sake of prideful protection. So concerning popular opinion, this this is common, right? We can easily cower to cultural pressure, what the world thinks of us, and so we can conceal our biblical convictions, be ashamed of the truth, and therefore not speak truth. But I think particularly within the church, I think for most of us, our tendency to falsehood is driven more by our desire to protect our pride, particularly when it comes to the local church. And interesting, Paul emphasizes Christian truthfulness on both fronts in our passage, doesn't he? We speak the truth to our neighbor. So think of all our neighbors, right? The the public square, those outside the church, we speak truth to them. And he emphasizes specifically the local church, for we are members one of another. You see, when you tell a lie to others in the church, it is a demonic wound inflicted upon Christ's body. One author put it this way. He said, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. This is so because a lie is a sable shaft from the kingdom of darkness. There is no place in the Christian ethic for the well-intentioned lie. In the moral behavior which Christ inspires, the end never justifies the means. Deception is a wound we inflict upon Jesus' church. So let me ask you some questions and answer truthfully in your own soul. Have you told any lies recently? Have you concealed the truth about yourself to protect your pride and reputation? Do you present yourself to others as as holy and upstanding to the church while hiding secret sin from others? Do you hide your soul with a sheepish grin and a sly tongue? When you are asked by others, how can I pray for you? Do you tell them honestly, even to the point of embarrassment? You see, you can bear false witness with speech and with silence, with flattery and concealment. And do you hold your tongue, church, when love demands that you speak to one another? When there's a brother or sister in danger, do you warn him with the truth? Or do you ignore him or her to their spiritual peril? Or by your silence, are you affirming the deception that has seized the heart of your fellow brother or sister? Christian, we must put away falsehood. We must always be truthful. Christ has freed you from the fear of man and from the approval of others. So be committed to the truth and speak that truth to one another in love, for we are members one of another. So we go from lying to speaking truth, but secondly, we go from unrighteous anger to righteous anger, from unrighteous anger to righteous anger. Anger can be fueled by sin or it can be fueled by righteousness. Anger itself is not sinful. In fact, I would suggest that sometimes the absence of anger is sinful. A sort of righteous anger ought to boil in the hearts of God's people whenever we observe wickedness and evil in the world. 
a cool indifference to abuse and injustice and suffering. That's an ungodly response. Jesus shows us the right expression of anger. He shows us that righteous anger over injustice as he goes to the temple and he flips over tables as he sees the money lenders in the temple. And so Jesus shows us how human anger can be expressed righteously and holy and obediently to God's commands. But for a lot of us, it's easy for our anger to turn carnal, isn't it? To turn into a sort of sinful anger that is initially perhaps motivated by righteousness, but it doesn't stay that way, does it? And those called by the gospel, we should put off ungodly anger. Look at what verse 26, look at what Paul says. He says, be angry and do not sin. So you can be angry and not sin. And Paul commands us to that. He says, do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the, to the devil. So be angry and do not sin. This is the Christian call. The transformation of the gospel as new creatures in Christ Jesus means that we go from this unrighteous, unbridled anger that is sin to a righteous, restrained, holy anger. But, but how do we parse the difference between the two? <laughs> how can you assess in your heart? Am I, am I angry because I'm acting in sin or because I'm motivated by righteousness? How do we discern the difference between godly anger and sinful anger? Well, that's a great question. The difference is really quite simple. Sinful anger brews when we are offended. Righteous anger comes when God is offended. So Psalm 119, the psalmist sings, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. You see, ungodly anger puts yourself at the center of the emotional bubbling. In contrast, godly anger is motivated by a zealous passion for God's honor and God's glory. And by our sin, our anger is distorted. And most of us are far too quick to explode in ungodly anger and are conspicuously absent when it comes to godly anger. Isn't that strange? But there's another important distinction between the two. Ungodly anger festers in the soul like a pot of soup on the stove. It just keeps simmering and simmering and simmering. And before long, the hot and spicy flavor melds into the very meat of your soul. So when you are personally offended, do you hold on to it? Do you have this tendency to replay in your head over and over again, like a, like a sports clip replay, right? Do you play it over and over again in your mind? Do you rehash the conversation on your drive home, coming up with what would have been, if I only thought of it, the perfect one-line jab to get back to that person? Do you hold on to grudges? Do you keep a record of wrongs? Do you scorn those who have wronged you and who have sinned against you? When in conflict with another person, do you avoid that person? Do you gossip about them? Do you disparage them behind their back? Do you find yourself exploding with an inner rage whenever that person comes around you? Oh, church, be, be careful of letting your anger simmer. Paul gives a warning that while certainly applies to marriage, we often use it for marriage, but he doesn't have marriage in view here, 
right? It's meant for every human relationship and conflict, especially those within the church. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it simmer. Be quick to resolve the dispute. Be quick to let go of the offense. Do not let your ungodly anger fester and simmer into bitterness and hatred and scorn for others because when you do that, you give the devil an opportunity. Humans cause 85% of wildfires in the United States. Now, how do they do that? Well, most of the time it's by negligence, by accident. An abandoned campfire with embers still simmering, a controlled fire for debris that gets out of hand, or discarded cigarette on the side of the road. Human negligence can lead to massive destruction across our landscape. And we have to recognize that ungodly anger left unchecked, that's not put out, is a fire. And we have to heed the counsel that we tell our children. Do not play with fire. Don't do it. It's dangerous, right? We, we don't want to let our anger simmer in our hearts and our souls. And, and we certainly don't want to add fuel to the fire to get it to rage all the more and stoke the flames. We must deal with our anger immediately. We must drown it with the waters of God's grace. And by the end of the day, no matter what has happened, no matter what conflict, we should seek to the best of our ability to resolve in our souls that issue. Ideally, this means that whatever conflict that might have sparked the anger is resolved, right? That should be the goal, to reconcile, particularly when it is between those within the local church. But even if it's not fully resolved, we do, all of us, have to go to the Lord with our ungodly anger. And we should ask him before we go to bed that night, we should ask him to search us and to know us and to help us put thoughts of anger out of our minds. We should pray for our enemies and we should pray for those who have wronged us. And then we should go to bed with nothing but love for that brother or sister in our heart. Beware of the smoldering anger and fire in your heart. An unchecked spark of anger can destroy marriages. It can divide families. It can split churches. It can leave ruin in its wake. Ungodly anger is unbefitting for the people of God. The gospel has brought us together. The gospel has united us as God's children. But by our anger, what do we do? We give Satan an opportunity to sever that unity, to bring destruction in its wake. We give the devil an opportunity to bring division and conflict that can unleash devastation upon our lives and the lives of others. But our unchecked anger not only brings destruction to other people, but, but secret anger in the heart has this way of gnawing at your soul. One author put it this way. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that you are wolfing down yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. You see, your unchecked anger has a way of devouring your soul. 
And so if that's a struggle for you, as it is for so many of us, let me urge you to repent of it immediately. Do not let the sun go down today, lest you consume yourself with it. James tells us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes, anger lodges in the heart of the fool. So if you struggle with ungodly danger, uh, anger, friend, let me urge you to put it to death. It is dangerous. It's dangerous to your soul. It's dangerous to this church. Put it out immediately. Do not let the sun go down on it. Do not give the devil an opportunity. And so we go from unrighteous anger to righteous anger. But number three, we see that we go from stealing to hardworking <laughs> in verse 28. Stealing is selfishness driven by a covetous desire to have at the expense of another. God's people has to put aside this sort of devilish selfishness. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. He says, let the thief <coughs> no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, most of the Ephesian church was probably not out there in their black and white outfit committing burglaries in the evenings, but stealing inclu uh, includes a broad swath of behaviors of, of rather than just breaking and entering. So in Paul's day, you could sneakily in the marketplace adjust the balance of the scales for trade so that you might come out ahead. That's stealing. So the application of the commandment, thou shalt not steal, it extends to all parts of our lives, doesn't it? To tax evasion, padded expense accounts, laziness at work, failing to return borrowed items, and much, much more. So when we fail to give others what they are fairly due, even if it's to the government or to our employer or to our friend, what we do is we commit a selfish covetousness at the expense of another person. So such a jealous and entitled heart is actually the complete opposite of the generous and self-sacrificing heart of Jesus that he has called us to live out in the gospel. So instead of stealing and taking advantage of others, we are to labor with honest work. Whether we are office workers or construction workers, whether we are teachers or physicians, we must do honest, hard work in service to the Lord and in service to our fellow man. Fair and honest work is good for our souls. And we must forsake the sort of idleness that seeks to gain from others rather than give to others. So what does Paul say in 2 Thessalonians? He says, we are to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So instead of stealing from others, either by active robbery or passive laziness, we should engage in honest work so that we can be generous to other people. Notice the, the transformation that ought to happen in our soul. We go from stealing to being generous. So why do we do honest work? Well, Paul tells us, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's why we work hard. That's why we don't steal. That's why we're not lazy. We, we earn our salaries, not just to provide for our needs, but so that we might have something to share with those who are in need. So while stealing gains at the expense of others, Christians work hard so that we can be generous to others. You see the difference? So does the love of money have such a grip on your heart 
that you are acting unethically at work? Do you feel entitled to your paycheck and slack off when the boss isn't paying very close attention? Are you lazy? Are you self-concerned? Are you working only for your own interests? Do you see the the income that you receive as a way to, to just benefit you or as a gift to be able to minister to others? Do you see how you can be generous with other people? God's people must be marked by hard, honest work with a generous heart. Fourthly, we go from corrupting talk to building up. From corrupting talk to building up. We see this in verse 29. The gospel transforms the very words we say. Very words we say. Look what Paul says in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We should all memorize this verse in the local church, shouldn't we? Corrupting talk is crude. It's a harmful way of speaking. Corrupting talk can be perverse jokes. It can be a side-eyed, sarcastic put-down. It can be a negative, critical, hurtful complaint. It can be a passive, aggressive comment or any other form of speech that intends to wound rather than heal, that intends to hurt rather than help, that intends to tear down the church rather than build up others. Corrupting talk is not just the content of our words, but it's often the intention behind our words. So you might avoid four-letter words and yet still be slicing up others like a ninja with your speech. Looking back over my life, I've, I've had to rely on the Lord's help to help me grow out of my corrupting speech. You know, I never went through the the teenage phase where kids think it's cool to use foul language. So that was never a struggle for me. Uh, I've always had the opinion that those who keep using the same few curse words over and over again in every sentence is only confessing their lack of vocabulary. But, But thinking that coarse language was merely the blunt club of the ignorant, I sharpened my speech with wit in order to slice others with my sarcasm. I became skilled at making others look like fools. I earned laugh at the expense of others. And all the while, I used my speech to exalt myself and to belittle other people. And to this day, I tend to avoid humor in the pulpit and in personal conversations. Not because I'm dour, but because my natural sense of humor is carnal, quickly becoming corrupting talk that seeks to tear down others rather than build them up. So, so church, where, where are the pitfalls for your speech? Do the words of your mouth bless others or does it curse others? If you have the courage, and I hope you do, ask those around you, what are my pitfalls when it comes to my speech? Where are the sins where my speech easily drifts into corrupting talk that isn't fitting for building up? And ask yourself the question, are others, are others spiritually better off for having a conversation with me? If you sat down and if you conversed with one of your friends or a fellow brother and sister in this church for 30 minutes, are they more spiritually encouraged or discouraged by their conversation with you? 
At soccer camp, we had four walkie-talkies to communicate with our team leaders so that we could stay in communication out in the field and in here and make sure everything was happening correctly. And for some reason, uh, Pastor Josue, his walkie-talkie had this tendency of turning on whenever he didn't press the button. It would just sort of randomly pop in all throughout soccer camp, and we would get a little snapshot of Josue's conversations without him even realizing it. And of course, as you might imagine, every time we heard him, he was building up others with his words, whether he was encouraging a kid struggling with the drill or whether he was rebuking a kid for being selfish and not passing. Every word he spoke had as its aim to build up others. And so I wonder if if we would hear the same for you. If we put a faulty walkie-talkie on you for the rest of the day or for tomorrow, for this week, and we got to eavesdrop periodically on your conversations to see the sort of caliber of your speech, what would we find? What would we hear? Would it be words filled with grace aimed at building up or carnal words that intend to tear down? Paul says we should speak only such as good for building up. Only. Not sometimes. Not when you feel like it, not when you think about it, but we should speak only as such is good for building up. Edifying speech is the only sort of speech fitting for the Christian. Our words should build up others, whether we're in the church, whether we're at the office, whether we're at the gym, or whether we're at home with our families. Do you speak to your spouse this way? What about your coworkers? What about your friends? What about your fellow church members or neighbors? Christian, you do not clock out from watching your tongue. Everywhere you go, your words must be seasoned with salt, spiritually profitable for those who hear you, because the aim is to build up others with our words that they might receive grace from the words they hear from us. And as we build up others with our words, we do so, Paul says, as fits the occasion. As fits the occasion. Sometimes what's most needed on an occasion is an encouraging word, a kind word, a word that spots an evidence of grace in another person's life and you call that to their attention. Or you give an encouraging reminder of the gospel and what the gospel means in terms of uh, encouragement and hope in a time of trouble. But other times, sometimes a word of warning is needed. Sometimes a word of correction should be given. Perhaps in one situation, an expression of gratitude would be best for building up. In another, a private rebuke. So wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit helps us navigate the complexity of our relationships and to know when and how and in what manner we are to speak to another for their spiritual good. So having the discernment requires that we think about others before we speak. What should I say at this moment? I want to pray and ask the Lord for help. And whatever words I say, my aim is their spiritual encouragement and being built up. A few weeks ago, I made an impromptu passing joke in a sermon, part of that uh, carnal sense of humor I was just telling you about, that was unhelpful and not edifying. And in one Marco Polo discussion with the preaching team that week, Charles Gooch spoke as fits the occasion and gave me a loving but a very firm rebuke and correction to the whole Marco Polo team. You know what? I am thankful, thankful for that rebuke. He told the truth, not to tear me down, but to build me up. And I'm grateful to God that he had the courage to love me with that truth. You see, words can inflict a great deal of pain on others, but a Christian's words 
whether it's a word of correction or a word of encouragement, it should be a balm of grace to others. God distributes the the sanctifying grace of of his spirit. He does it through the words of his people, what we say to one another. And through our speech, you and I, church, are God's instruments for the building up of this body. So Paul hearkens back earlier to the earlier chapters, and, and he tells us each person should be speaking the truth in love, so ultimately the body builds itself up in love. Christian, the tongue is indeed a restless evil, full of deadly poison, as James says. But by the transforming power of the gospel, our words should go from corrupting others to being a means of grace to others. So examine your speech. Are you speaking grace into the lives of others? But then fifthly, we see that we go from ultimately the old life to the new life from vice to virtue, gospel transformation goes to the most intimate and mundane aspects of our lives. Paul wants us to make this connection. Repenting of sin is not just repenting of the quote-unquote big sins, like adultery or murder, but the thousands of small and ordinary sins that we seemingly commit every single day, like lying, ungodly anger, stealing, corrupting speech, The gospel of Jesus ought to transform even the most mundane and common aspects of our lives. But Paul speaks these specific uh, transformations that ought to happen in the Christian life and our new life in Christ for a reason. It's interesting that all these sins that we've looked at so far and this putting off and putting on, all of them could be described or classified as social sins, couldn't they? A web of sins that are directly breaking down our relationship with other people. Paul stresses these sins because lying, anger, stealing, and corrupting talk within the church directly work against the Holy Spirit in the church. Look at what Paul says in verse 30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, without understanding the context of Ephesians, verse 30 can seem a little bit random. Why is Paul interjecting here about grieving the Holy Spirit? And we have to remember what Paul has said earlier in Ephesians about the Holy Spirit and the grand plan of redemption. The Holy Spirit, he says in Ephesians 1 verse 13, the Holy Spirit is the one who seals us together in Christ as the guarantee of our inheritance in him. Paul alludes back to that in this verse. But most important here in Paul's understanding of what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit is Ephesians 2, verse 22. In fact, flip over there and and see it. What does Paul say? He's describing the church, Ephesians 2, verse 22. He's describing the church as a temple, as God's building that God is forming and joining together. Remember, Jew and Gentile reconciled in the one new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 22, in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the Spirit is doing this work of building us together as individuals, as a temple for the glory of God. And so the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives to join us, to build us into this beautiful, beautiful structure for God's presence to dwell. And so essential, Paul says, to the Holy Spirit's ongoing ministry in the church is the binding of God's people in unity and the building up of those people to maturity. 
But by our social sins, we divide and destroy the Spirit's work. We're working in opposition to him as he's seeking to bind and build. We're dividing and destroying. So remember, all Ephesians 4 has been focused on the unity of the church. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel means walking together as one body being joined and built together. So Paul stresses these sins here for a reason. Because lying, stealing, anger, corrupting talk, it grieves the Holy Spirit in his work. Instead of keeping in step with the Spirit, working in conjunction with the Spirit, by partaking of these sins, we are walking in opposition to the Spirit's work. Such sins characterize the old way of life, who we used to be, and is not the new life that Christ has created for us. Paul sums up this transformation from the old life to the new by giving a a list of vices and a list of virtues. The six vices are in verse 21. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Do these vices describe you? Do you see them in your life in any way? This is not the way of God's people, but it is a reflection of the pattern of our former way of life. But now we've learned Christ. We've been saved by his grace through faith. We have been transformed into new people. And so so bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, that is not who we are anymore. Now we put on the virtues described in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kind, tenderhearted, or compassionate, forgiving This is the new life God has created for us in Jesus, a life after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So perhaps the evidence of our salvation is most evident in our interaction with God's people. Church, we will, from time to time, sadly, commit these sins against one another. We will not always live up to God's ideal for our new life together, all of us, We are works in progress. But you can sinfully respond to others who sin against you. If you respond to others who have wronged you with bitterness, with wrath, with anger, clamor, and malice, you are living in the old self, not in the new one created by Christ. And such responses of your heart grieves the work of the Holy Spirit that God is doing in this church. And we have to remember this, especially today. How fitting today. On our fourth anniversary as a church, we must be vigilant against these vices. Church, they are an acid that erode away the church's unity and love. Some of us have seen and experienced the corrosive effects of this old life in past church settings. And so if the unity of Redemption Church will grow sweeter, if we will grow more mature, if the Spirit will continue to do His work of building us up and joining us together, then we must all be vigilant and watchful over our own hearts. And we must daily, not just momentarily, but daily uproot any bitterness, wrath, and malice that we may have towards one another. Such vices are easy to conceal. But let me urge you to confess that sin to your brother or sister whom you have wronged. Do not linger to seek reconciliation. Do not give the enemy a foothold. Forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who is at work. And do not hinder it with your bitterness, with your unforgiveness. When sinned against, how should you respond? With kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. If we want to see the smile of the Holy Spirit on our congregation, then this is how we must respond to each other's sin. And in case we missed the point, Paul reminds us that this is exactly how Jesus responded to us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, church, we scorned Jesus' name, didn't we? We scorned it. We were angry. We were vile. We had corrupting speech. But yet, Jesus didn't respond sin with sin. He showed us kindness. When we earned the consequences of our sin, Jesus showed us compassion, didn't he? And when we sinned against God by breaking his commandments and profaning his name, God in Christ forgives us. He forgives us. The transformed life, this new life is birthed by the gospel and is lived in light of the gospel. So if you do not know the power of God's saving grace this morning, I implore you to respond to Jesus with repentance and faith. God will forgive you. If you humble yourself before him and look to Jesus in faith, Christ is kind. He is tenderhearted. He is ready to forgive you this morning. And Christian, let the love of Christ that you know, that you have learned, that you've experienced for yourself, let that be lived out in our lives as we put off the old self with its lying lips, with its carnal anger, with its selfish stealing, with its corrupting talk. Let us love one another as Jesus has loved us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. Lord, we know that even though we are new creatures in Christ Jesus, Lord, that old man, that old woman, that old Gentile self comes out in so many ways. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to know truth as the truth is in Jesus. Or may we interact with one another as Christ has interacted with us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to put away falsehood and help us to be people who speak the truth. Lord, help us to put away unrighteous anger. And Lord, help us to be righteously anger over those who offend you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to not steal, not to be lazy, not to be selfish and indulgent. But Lord, help us to be generous to others as we work hard. And Lord, help our speech not to be corrupting and tearing down and defiling to others. But Lord, may our speech be seasoned with grace. Lord, we ask for your help in all this. Lord, we know that we are saints in Christ Jesus, but yet we are still sinners. As the Holy Spirit is at work within us to sanctify us, to build us up. Father, I pray for all of us in this church that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would be quick to repent of these sins. Lord, so many of these sins are overlooked. Some of these sins can be hidden in the heart for years without anyone knowing it. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us and that you would lead us to confess such sins to one another. And Lord, that you would lead us to reconcile and to repent and Lord, to work in step with your spirit who is working in us to build us up and join us together. Jesus, we ask that you would do this for the sake of your glory. 
And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.